Pastor Rob Pfeiffer is the assistant pastor at Maranatha Baptist Church of Flint, serving with his father-in-law, Pastor Don Albright. He is involved in teaching and ministering to the youth, as well as outreach, church activities, preaching, overseeing the children's ministry, and anything else that needs to be done. He is a graduate of Maranatha Baptist Bible College and a 2009 graduate of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Pastor Rob and his wife, Joanne, have five children. I assume three are in the nursery. I assume correctly. Pastor Rob and our pastor have been friends for five years, and throughout that time, for our pastor, no one has been a greater source of advice, encouragement, and a stimulus to do more for Christ. Pastor Rob. Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. When I knew, when I was told that uh, Pastor Jacob had written the uh, introduction, I, I, you know, I was a little nervous because if you know, you know him well. He, as you do by now, I'm sure, he is. Uh, prone to uh, like to joke and to tease, and, and uh, that's one of the things that we like to do a lot. Um, he is a great encouragement to me, and um, I'm thankful to be here tonight. I hope God will use his word to encourage you and challenge you, um, and it, it's a great privilege to stand in for a very good friend who's been a wonderful encouragement and help to me and constantly challenging me uh, in my walk with Christ. And uh, I'm very excited that he's able to be here and be your pastor. And we, we uh, pray for, for him and the work here as well, that God would be honored and glorified and, and cause it to grow and expand and the light to reach out into the community. And um, As we look tonight, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. And we're going to read uh, the beginning of the message. Actually, I'm going to back up a little bit before verse 22. I think your notes say 22 to 34. We're going to actually back up to verse 16. And we're going to start reading with verse 16. And what I'd like to do is actually uh, read down to about verse uh, 27 or 28. And uh, we'll go ahead and pray. And then we'll look at what God's Word says about presenting the Gospel. So, Starting in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. They were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, 
Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. We're going to pause there and pray as we finish up in looking at Acts 17. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to learn from Paul's example in proclaiming the gospel. Father, we don't often get opportunities where people ask us to explain. Sometimes we have to push and prod and challenge people in spite of their disinterest. But there are times when you do give us that opportunity and people want to know. Father, we know this is the message that the unbelieving world needs. And we pray that you would help us to present your truth accurately, clearly, completely, and that we would do so in its proper authority. And we pray that you'd help us to learn as we look at Paul and how he presented the gospel that we too will better proclaim the truth of your word and be a better witness for you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look here at Acts 17, we see an example in Paul of what we all need to do. We all, as believers in Jesus Christ, need to be presenting, sharing the gospel with those around us. Now, it is true in Paul's case, he is sort of given an opportunity to speak at length, and we don't always get such an opportunity. However, we can learn and we learn much from how Paul approaches these people that he's dealing with and shares the gospel with them. And I want you to see as we look at point number one, what Paul does. Point number one, we notice that Paul examined his audience, and we should examine our audience. We should examine our audience. Now, in Paul's case, if you notice, we started with verse 16. What does it say Paul's broken over? He's concerned about verse 16. It says it's a city full of idols. So Paul knows about these people that they are materialists. They worship idols. They don't have a right view of who God is. So a great portion of what we see Paul dealing with in this passage is who God is. He explains a lot about God and the creation and challenging them with those things because he knew in that audience were people who worshipped idols. So Paul focuses on who God is. Now, let's look at some of the other things we notice about these people. In the city, it, was a, it, was, it seems to be a metropolis here with all kinds of different people. Notice 
They were Jews, in verse 17, because they were synagogues. They were Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in some cases. It also says the marketplace. There are all kinds of different people he'd run into there. Even verse 18, philosophers. You know, just to uh, pause there as we look at these examples, many of these same kinds of people, though the specifics like Stoics and, and Epicureans aren't necessarily what we deal with today, uh, at least in those terms, but a lot of the same kind of people. We're dealing with people who are very intelligent in some cases, right? In Royal Oak and the surrounding areas, there are many people who are very intelligent, well-educated people, and yet they don't know the truth of the gospel. So we deal with people like that. We also see religious people. And we also see, though, however, in verse 19 and 20, look what he says about those people. Uh, He says, the people there are saying, we want to know what is this new teaching you're proclaiming. And you're bringing strange things to our ears. So in some cases, there were interested but ignorant people. They didn't know about these things, hadn't heard these things before. And lastly, verse 21, the people in many cases were very curious, always wanting to learn something new. So when you look at all of that, you have to say this is a pretty broad and diverse audience, right? So Paul has clearly a group of people that worship idols, materialistic, And therefore, he needs to explain who God is to these people. They do not understand the divine nature. So he spends a lot of time focusing on who God is. But I want you to see as well, number two, that Paul spends a lot of time executing. He he executes the biblical approach here. In verse 22, we'll see how he presents the truth in contrast to error. Present the truth in contrast to error. In verse 22, it says, Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And then verse 23 says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, what I want you to see there is Paul is not commending them that they are doing good in that they're being sort of religious. That is not Paul's point. His point is you don't know. You're ignorant of who God really is. Therefore, I'm going to explain who God is to you. Now, he's combating error when he's doing that. He's not saying, hey, hey guys, you're, you're doing well, but you know, you're just wrong in a few things, and let me help you fix that, and you'll be doing even better. That's not his approach at all. His approach is you're ignorant. You don't know who God is. Now, as I say that, and as I'm explaining these things up here tonight, 
it may sound like we could be in danger of, and we do need to be careful of not coming across as arrogant, know-it-alls, and we know everything. So that's not what Paul's doing either. But what he is doing is he's combating error. He's pointing out their wrong and they need the truth. And at least in, in, in the experience I've had, my own experiences, as well as what I've heard from others as well, often we don't want to confront. And yet the gospel itself is confrontational. The idea that everyone in the world is a sinner is confrontational because the sentiment in the world today is one of the most precious things in the world, in the eyes of the world, is self-esteem. We need to love ourselves more, says the world, because that's what's really wrong and broken. We need to love ourselves. Well, that's not accurate at all. God's Word tells us We already love ourselves. We love ourselves too much. And that's the problem. We are sinners and sharing the truth, sharing the gospel is confrontational. But again, Paul knew his audience. He knew who he was dealing with. He was dealing with people that worshipped idols. I wanted to... uh, remind you of an example about that as well. When we are sharing the gospel, we need to know who we're dealing with, combat the errors that they are thinking, that they're believing, that they're holding to, that we may point out the error so that they may then recognize the truth. So, uh, as an illustration of this, um, having to know your audience in appropriate conversations, one example on the extreme end is If you were to go and you were to do a service in a nursing home, you would be completely misguided in who your audience is if you were going to teach them about child rearing, right? It would be pretty pointless. It wouldn't do much for them. Now, it may encourage them in how to pray for their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but that wouldn't be a match. So let's give you another example. How about if we're witnessing to somebody who is a Roman Catholic? Now, they understand many things about God and the Scripture that are true and that are right. We, do, we would not need to spend time defending and explaining who God the Father is. They know that. They agree with us on what the Scriptures say about that. We wouldn't have to spend much time on who God the Son is. They know and understand that. Holy Spirit relatively well also, but we would probably have to deal with at some point is who is Mary in this divine nature? Is Mary a part of the Godhead or not? I mean, for a Catholic, many equate Mary with the mother of Jesus being divine herself. We would have to, in in dealing with a Catholic, deal with that issue. 
for them to properly understand who God is. Um, Or if we're dealing with someone who's a Muslim, we can't expect that we explain to them one time that Jesus died for their sins and they need to turn to Jesus and trust Him as Lord and Savior and that that's going to completely click and they're going to get it. They need to understand who God is. They need to understand that God is one, yes, but that He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that they reject. So that would have to be confronted when sharing the Gospel. So we need to be willing to combat error. That is the biblical approach. We need to contrast truth with error. But I want you to see as well, letter B there under number two, we also need to present the biblical message from a God-centered perspective. From a God-centered perspective. Notice in verse 24, after Paul says you're, you're worshiping ignorantly and I'm going to explain who God is to you, how does he start? His message isn't Here's a way to get out a lot of your troubles. That's not how Paul approaches this in sharing the gospel. He starts with, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth. How does He start? What does that sound like? That sounds like, though it's not an exact quotation, it sounds just like, Genesis 1.1, right? He starts with God as the sovereign creator of the universe. And therefore, because God is the sovereign creator, we are responsible to Him. So he starts with a God-centered perspective. It's not a sales pitch. It's not presenting the Gospel in such a way so that I can quickly get someone to pray with me and I can count that as having won someone to Christ. That wasn't his focus. His focus was presenting the truth of the Gospel and that starts with who God is. The Gospel starts with God. God made us. We're responsible to Him We've sinned against Him. Therefore, uh, we need to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. He starts and presents the truth with the God-centered perspective. Why don't you see number C, letter C there? We also need to present the truth clearly. We need to present the truth clearly. Letter C. In verses 24 to 26, I want you to look there with me. We already read 24 a couple times. It talks about God making the world and everything in it, and that He's Lord of heaven and earth. He also says there He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Verse 25, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. And He gives to all people life and breath and all things. In verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now stopping there, What is Paul doing? 
very quickly. He has explained much of the beginning of Genesis. He's explained God created the heaven and the earth. He gives life. And that he made one man, the man Adam. And so he is very quickly presenting the truth in a clear way for the people to understand. Now, if, now if he just tried to go through and quote every verse and every passage that related to that topic and read through everything, that would have taken a very long time. And ideally, yes, we want to give people as much of the Word of God as we can. But I also want you to see that Paul presents the Gospel concisely. He has limited time, and he does it in a way that conveys the truth completely, but yet is in a timely way. He explains the biblical principles to the people. And we, in communicating the gospel, need to explain it clearly so that people can understand it. And we need to explain it concisely, but the cha- or briefly. The challenge, though, is sometimes when we shorten it down, we leave out essential things. So we need to be sure when we shorten it down, we are explaining the essential things. And Paul's doing that. He's explaining who God is, that He made man, and all of this setting up for His explanation that we're accountable to God and we need to answer to Him. And God sent His Son. So, point number three, I want you to see as well that we need to explain God and His message authoritatively. Authoritatively. And letter A there, he begins with God as the supreme authority. And I think this is important because in our day, we live in a society that the idea of tolerance is preached as important doctrine in the sense of everybody's rights don't try to say you're, you're absolutely correct. We need to agree with everybody. Paul doesn't present the gospel message as another opinion. And hey, pick mine. That's not what he's doing. He's presenting the gospel message with authority. Not attitude, but with authority in the, the way that God intended. He is establishing God as the supreme creator and therefore the authority and therefore they're accountable to Him. So He is, as we said, the true and living God, the creator, the sovereign. And we also mention, I mentioned again in letter B, He boldly confronts error. He boldly combats error. Look at... Uh, Verse 24, the end of verse 24, he says, God does not dwell in temples. What's his point? His point is, God is not an idol. He is not a statue 
that you have in your house of worship. He's combating that error. He also says uh, in verse uh, 25 and 26, what do you say? He's not served by human hands. You can't see him. You, 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 you can't give him things because he needs them. God is spirit. He is self-existent. He doesn't need us. And therefore, he's making it very clear, God is the authority. He is also personal, though. Notice in verse 27, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope him for him and find him. And yet he's not far from each of us. God is personal. So he presents and explains who God is in a way that preserves God's authority. And that's important. In our day and age, our world is filled with people who do not want to submit to authority. And we need to be careful. There are actually, because our society is filled with so many different people and so many different religious cultures, there are religious cultures where people will listen to you and will, to a degree, accept what you're saying about Jesus Christ And then their approach will be that they'll worship Jesus Christ alongside of their other gods. So we need to be clear that it is God who made the world and He alone. He alone is the one to be worshipped. We also see, letter D, that uh, he explains that being in the image of God was known even to their poets. I wanted you to look at uh, verse 28 with me. It says in verse 28, For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Now, again, his point isn't to compliment how wonderfully correct these poets are. His point is, you know that you're made in the image of God. Even your own poets testify to it. So that contributes to his authoritative message. There is within mankind a knowledge of, of the Creator. Now, Romans 1 tells us that because of our sinful nature, that knowledge of God is suppressed and people reject it and turn from it and try to ignore it. But there is a sense in which the heavens declare the glory of God and everyone knows it. So we can speak authoritatively to them. Now, have have you ever had the situation where you have argued with somebody about something? They were insistent and arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing. And finally, you have a breakthrough. And they admit that you're right, but they've just wanted to argue with you. Have you had a situation like that before? Many times, I'm not saying this is exactly how it's going to work for everyone, but many times 
people are arguing with us about God because, not because they don't agree or recognize that it's true, but because they don't want to submit to God. So if they can argue out of it, then they figure they can get out of it. And many times what we need to do is just square up with them and say, you know this is true. Depends on the person, depends on how well you know them. But many times they do know the truth they're just rejecting. And I'm thinking primarily of people uh, that have grown up in the American culture that have heard the Word of God. Many times they know the truth, they just don't want to accept it. In my case, I had a co-worker. He'd grown up in a Catholic church, and he would often complain to me about the Catholic church and things that he didn't like in the Catholic church and he thought was wrong with the Catholic church. And to his surprise, sometimes I would agree with him and say, I, I agree, that's not right. I don't, I don't believe that. Or that's, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. And one time we are having a prolonged conversation and we're arguing about God's Word and its authority. And finally, I just stopped the arguing with him. And I said, is it a matter of you really don't think these things are true or you just don't really want to submit to it? And that really ended the arguing and he kind of had a shameful look and was like, yeah, that's, that's probably it. He, he knew. He knew he wasn't living right. He knew he was doing wrong, but he didn't want to submit to God. So I wish I could tell you that he had trusted Christ and he's a born-again believer now. He isn't, to my knowledge. But the point is, many times people do know and they on purpose argue with us to get us down those rabbit trails and we're totally off the wrong message. And we need to stay on message and present it authoritatively. This isn't one option to choose. This is the option. This is the truth. This is the way to eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul's presenting it, with authority. I want you to see point number four. He also emphasizes man's accountability. We already mentioned how he, made, he, he uh, mentioned that God made man and God made man to seek him. But I want you to see in verse 30, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Verse 31, Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul points out God demands repentance. We, we talk about, and the Scriptures talk about, the good news of Jesus Christ. But we need to be careful we don't leave out the bad news of man's sin and guilt before God. It, it is a tendency, I think, to just focus on, hey, here's how you get eternal life. 
And that's a part of what's involved in the Gospel. But it's more than just getting eternal life. It is about accountability to God. And and he says in verse 31, we're going to all be judged by God. There is a judgment coming and people need to know that. As we have opportunity, we need to warn them about the coming judgment. Haven't you dealt with people before in, in explaining to them the gospel? And they seem to just have no fear. In many cases, they know and they could tell you what they know about Jesus Christ and salvation. I had one guy I worked with. His attitude was, I don't want to be saved. It just shocked me. He had a concept of what it meant to be saved. I think it was a flawed concept. But he had somewhat of a concept of what salvation was. And his response was, I don't want that. Well, he didn't really truly understand and believe the alternative, did he? He didn't really truly believe and understand that eternal judgment is coming and the lake of fire awaits for those that are found guilty before God. We need to warn people about the coming judgment and that's a part of the message. Sometimes people have no sense of urgency about the Gospel. In part, I think that's because we're not communicating the outcome for those who reject it. There is going to be a judgment and we should explain that. Man is accountable. And man must accept Jesus Christ. Paul makes mention here of God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul has gone here very briefly from creation in Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation with the judgment. And he's making the point that they need to trust in Jesus Christ. They need to repent of their sin and turn to God. Now, I want you to see lastly as well, we should always, when presenting the Gospel, expect an answer. And what I mean by that, I needed to find another A to to keep the alliteration going. But the idea here is some kind of response. There is going to be a response to the Gospel. There is always a response. There's either going to be an acceptance or a rejection. And this is what we should understand as well. A choice to delay responding is a rejection. That is a rejection. Our society is filled with people who want to be passive and just put things off and delay, delay, delay. A delay is an answer. It is a response. And that response is a rejection. Look at verse 32. How do the people here respond at the Areopagus? It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So there were people that made fun of what Paul was saying and there were people that wanted to hear more and eventually believed. So we should expect we're going to get responses in all directions. We're we're going to get people that are going to passively just not want to hear it or reject it that way. We'll get some people that will make fun of us. We'll be known maybe in the workplace or the neighborhood as the, 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 the Bible thumper or the church goer, those weird people, you know, they don't you know they don't act like us or do things like us. And yet there will be some who will respond. We can't control that outcome. We can't guarantee what the response is going to be. But we can be sure there will be a response. And where our responsibilities are, making sure that we appropriately present the gospel. We need to understand who we're dealing with. What about God do they not properly understand? That should be confronted. What about their accountability to God? Are they not properly understanding? Are we combating error? Or are we just, you know, being real soft and not want to disagree with anything they're saying? We have to confront. I didn't mention, but I'll mention now. We can make the mistake of confronting every little thing that's wrong and getting off message. We need to be careful about that. We don't need to argue about... Um, we may need to, with some Catholics, we may need to discuss the Lord's Supper if they connect it with salvation. That may need to be discussed. But there may be other things about days of worship, time of worship, uh, you know, little uh, events in the Bible. You know, it says this person did this and did that really happen? I mean, we don't have to answer every single little objection that people have. But we do need to confront those core elements of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, what He did for us, and what's wrong with us, and our accountability to God. We do need to confront those. And are we presenting all of it with the proper biblical authority? We shouldn't have to apologize for this message. This is a message we believe with all of our hearts. It's what we're counting on, right? God's Word tells us the only way of salvation. And we need to present it to people that way. And trust that God will do the work. And pray that God will do the work that we can't do in their responses. But our part is to appropriately, faithfully, accurately present the gospel, that people may respond the right way to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ died in our place and that He rose again showing that that payment was made in full. And thank You for the work of Your Spirit in our lives that we... Uh, we're able to understand and recognize the truth and turn from our sin. 
Thank you for bringing those changes in our lives. And I pray that you would strengthen us. Help us, Father, to be active in trying to share this message with others around us. It is very difficult at times for us because we're busy. In some cases, we know it may mean we lose friendships or relatives may not want to talk to us anymore. And yet, Father, we know that this is what everyone needs to know and understand. Help us to have boldness. Help us to present your message accurately. Help us to present it in its authority, not because we are authoritative, but because your word is authoritative, because you are the authority over all the earth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.